All right, Genesis 39 is where we left off last time, and we went down last time again looking at the life of Joseph here down as far as verse uh, 6. We've been kind of turning the corner here on uh, sort of the latter quarter of the book of Genesis as we'll just continuously be looking now at the the life of Joseph, sort of the, the last of these four major figures we have in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now as the Bible really focuses in our attention upon the life of Joseph, this young man who, uh, one of the twelve uh, sons of Jacob, uh, and it just really seems that uh, by the anointing of God and God's hand being upon his life as a young man, one of the younger sons, that the Lord just had a special plan and purpose for Joseph's life. Again, it was by God's calling and God's design. Remember we saw back in chapter 37, the Lord just sort of uh, put these dreams into his heart, revealing to him that God had something in store for his future. It seems some uh, role of responsibility whereby he would be uh, placed uh, in a position of leadership, and again, certainly not understanding all of that, but it seems from a very early age, God's hand was upon his life in a unique way. His own father recognized that, gave him uh, a level of stewardship, it seems, kind of promoted him over his own older brothers to a place of kind of responsibility among the herding and the flocks of the family, and remember his brothers envied him, they despised him, because they saw this, uh, you know, sort of special favor their father showed him, and and because he shared the dreams that the Lord had given to him enthusiastically uh, with his brothers, they envied him, they despised him. It caused friction between them. They tossed him into a pit, and ultimately, member decided to sell him off to a band of Ishmaelite traders to just sort of do away with him, and went back and told their father Jacob that. Uh, this kind of uh, fabricated story that, hey, looks like that an animal attacked him. Here's his garment, this garment of many colors. It was bloodied, and uh, he sold off hundreds of miles away, taken away now down into Egypt, uh, where we saw at the beginning of chapter 39. And I'll tell you, for sake of context, let's just read down, though we looked at it last time, verse 1 down through verse 6, and we'll kind of get a running start to where we're going tonight. Genesis 39 verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, uh, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, we saw last time, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, and we talked about how Potiphar would sort of, that position describes sort of a, a, a chief of the security guard, sort of maybe the chief of the secret service, if you would, of Pharaoh's uh, bodyguard. So someone who was the chief executioner, he had control over the security forces of Pharaoh, a high-ranking officer, someone who would execute those who in any way violated the law of Egypt or threatened the throne in any way. And uh, this is the role of this man Potiphar who purchases Joseph as a young man, he's brought down there, remember, around 17 years old uh, at this time, and he purchases him now for sort of a household servant or slave, if you would. He buys him from this band of Ishmaelite traders. And the unique thing is this, as we'll get tonight into sort of these events that happen within uh, the household of of Potiphar that eventually get Joseph, remember, wrongly thrown into prison, where he then is there for a period of time. Uh, we know that Joseph comes to power ultimately, again, if, if we know the story, I know we're jumping ahead, but many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. We know ultimately Joseph comes to power 
at the age of 30. And again, very interesting because there just seems to be something about that age we find in the Bible. Uh, Joseph comes into his place of ministry and, and role of responsibility at the age of 30. He's lifted up to the right hand of Pharaoh, remember, second in charge of all of Egypt. Uh, we'll see later on that the uh, Levitical uh, priests and ministers in the uh, uh, law had to wait, though they were trained their entire lives long, they had to wait until the age of 30 before they went into active service and ministry. Uh, David comes to the throne at the age of 30. Jesus begins his public ministry at the age of 30. So there's something very unique, it seems, in the Word of God where God will cultivate and develop character and and work in a life and just something very unique, it seems, we see in the Bible. But I point that out because we know a couple things about Joseph. He goes down to Egypt at 17, and then there's a 13-year period where God's cultivating and developing his character, and these are the things we're reading about here. And it's at the age of 30 that his public ministry, in a sense, if you want to call it that, begins where he's promoted to second in charge in Egypt and actually takes his role of responsibility that God had ordained and called him to serve in. What we don't know is this, is what portions of those 13 years he was in what place? How long was he in Potiphar's house? Doing well before Potiphar's wife started making these advancements towards him, as we'll read about tonight, uh, you know, sexually. How long was that going on? What, was that happening when he was at 20 years old? Was it happening when he was 23 years old? Uh, then once he gets thrown in the prison, how long was he actually in the prison for? It seems a number of years. We know that as we'll see tonight, when, if we get there, when he gets forgotten about, that it says that he's there for two more years. So we know he was in prison for at least a two to three year span. What we don't know, we can only sort of speculate, is how many of those years was he in prison? How many of those years was he serving in Potiphar's house and doing well? Uh, how many years was he undergoing this tremendous, as we'll see, temptation of the uh, promiscuous advances of Potiphar's wife, it says that for days he resisted her. How many days? Was this thing that was going on for years uh, to where ultimately... We don't know those things, but we know there's a 13-year span where God's calling is upon his life to then where actually that calling culminates. And no doubt through all those things, God's got one primary thing in mind anyway in the life of Joseph is God's cultivating his character. God's shaping him, God's testing him, God's preparing him for his role, and at the same time, God's preparing the role that he'll ultimately be in, that he would be there at the right time and the right place to fulfill that. So he's now bought as sort of a household slave. At this point, certainly, he would still be a young man, but then we just get some record of what happens when he arrives there. Verse 2 through 6, we looked at this last week, it says, "...the Lord was with Joseph." And he was a successful man. So he's yanked from his family, but notice he's not yanked away from God. Uh, he's, everybody and all of his familiarity is completely eradicated from his life. He's in a foreign country, not by his own choice. He's put somewhere he never intended to be. Uh, he's feeling alone. But the thing you see about Joseph is that God never abandoned him in the process. Was he going through the crucible? Absolutely. Was was his character being grinded on and was he going through difficult, challenging times? Yes, but the Lord was with him through the entire process. And that's the continual, you'll notice, coined phrase we see specifically in chapter 39, that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord never abandoned Joseph. And it seemed Joseph recognized that. And that was a thing, I think, that held him, that anchored him, that he knew. And somehow he sensed, again, didn't have a copy of the Word of God like you and I do. 
He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like you and I do as Christians. Uh, he didn't have a church family to give him accountability and encouragement. And, hey, let's pray together and call me if you're having a hard time. Or uh, He didn't have the benefits of any of those things. But what he did know is the presence of God is with me. It seems he had an abiding relationship with the Lord. And that sustained him. Uh, the fact that he sensed the presence of God and stood in fellowship with God was the thing that really sustained him and made him the man that he was. So, you know, just great encouragement how often we think, well, we have to have this or I don't have that or the reason I'm still struggling with this is... Listen, Joseph had God. <laughs> he had God. And God was enough. God was sufficient. I'm not discounting the value of other things. But one of my greatest grievances in my heart, in my own Christianity so often, and I, and I see it among the church and the body of Christ, is just, oh, well, we have to have this and this and this and this in order to live a successful Christian life or to walk in victory. And, and, and I don't see the Bible teaching that. You know, I, I really don't. In fact, you know, I remember, it brings to my mind a couple of years ago, um, I was out on the West Coast uh, doing, uh, it was a, a church planting class. In fact, actually, it was one of the first times that I met Paul, not knowing I would meet him years later, actually coming down here. Um, I, I got invited to go out there. It was, I don't know, what was the name of the? Fit for the field. Fit for the field. <clears throat> and it was a church planting class for guys who had a heart to want to learn about, you know, pastoral ministry or potential church planning. Anybody could attend it. And they asked Calvary, a couple of different Calvary pastors to come and to do sessions. And so I flew out there to, and, and was asked to do two or three sessions and share. Um, and one of the things the Lord put on my heart, it wasn't something I had prepared, but uh, the, one of the guys that was sharing during the time that I was there was really kind of, you know, harping on, you know, well, you, you got to have, you know, this and this and that, and you got to have your team and this and that. And he really kept harping, you got to have your team, you know, you got to have this person in your team, and you got to have this person in your team and this person in your team before you ever go out and church plant. Uh, so when I when I had my session, I just said, look, uh, in all due respect, I'll tell you the truth. I, I did have a team before I went out and I planted the first church that the Lord led us out to go plant. And I said, my team was this. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and my wife, if you want to add you know, her in from, from a human level. And that was it. But you know what? That was sufficient. And I understand the value of, hey, you've know, you, you got to get your music guy. And you gotta get the, and, and, but the Lord is what we truly need. And the Lord is the one that makes all the difference. And here Joseph don't have no team, but he's got God. Uh, and it says, because the Lord was with Joseph, he was a successful man, verse 2, And when he was in the house of the master of the Egyptian. And his master, notice, saw that the presence of the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Again, it was the presence of the Lord. God was prospering him. God was blessing him. We have to so remember that the presence of the Lord makes all the difference in the world. And the presence of God, again, this is in his occupational role. The presence of God in his occupational role, please take note, did not detract from him being successful. It enhanced him being successful. And we at times have, I think, the fearful idea or the ideas impressed upon us that you have to be careful to not be a little too, you know, bold and incorporate God in everything you do in the work. You be just kind of be quiet and shh, you know, and be you know, overly reserved. But because if if you try and incorporate God into your work life, well, that may detract and 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 hinder you from being successful or being promoted or being able to to prosper. Look, when I read the life of Joseph, who's in a pagan 
pagan uh, you know, master's house, the presence of God didn't detract from his success. The presence of God enhanced his successfulness. His master respected it. His master saw it. And no doubt his master, again, promotes him because of it and says, you know, I wish there were more people kind of like this Joseph guy because that God thing in his life is making my business prosper and succeed and do better because he has a standard of ethics and a, you know, a work discipline. And he does his work as unto the Lord. And again, as we saw last time, Verse 4 says, Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, and so he made him overseer of his house. And all that Potiphar had, he put under Joseph's authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had, notice verse 5, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, or you could say the Lord blessed uh, his business, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And thus he left all he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not even know what he had except the bread which he ate. You know, so confident was he in the stewardship and the successfulness and the you know just the ability to manage the affairs of his household that it says that Potiphar literally said, you know what, all I care about is what's for dinner tonight. Uh, Joseph is doing such a good job. I don't got to micromanage this guy. I don't have to keep track of him. He's capable. He's competent. And there's obviously just a real sense of favor upon his life. And he just literally turns over the responsibilities of pretty much everything he owns over to Joseph and, and, and is thankful to have somebody like that as a second-in-charge type person. And I'll tell you this, any leader, any business owner, any employer, they love people like that, that they can just recognize there's a good sense of stewardship and that they can just sort of say, hey, I don't have to worry about it. Whatever's under their care uh, will be well taken care of and flourish. And this was Joseph. This guy just you know, very competent and, and did things in a way, no doubt, that pleased the Lord and therefore he was profitable in all he did, and God's hand of favor was upon him. He was a good steward, and his master literally had put everything under Joseph's hands. Again, Joseph being promoted and used as the head of his household. Well, the Lord is using Joseph's life. You should almost, if you know anything about the spiritual life, be able to then calculate if God's hand of blessing is on his life, and God's got a calling on his life, well, what do you think the next thing is going to happen? <laughs> The devil is going to try and destroy his life, and he's going to try and derail his life. And, of course, that's what we begin to see by way of pattern here as Joseph's story goes on. Verse 6 tells us, though Joseph was doing very well and prospering and being promoted, it says, however, Joseph was handsome in form, that is his physical form, and appearance. Now remember, his mother Rachel, it tells us, remember, his mother Rachel, Jacob fell in love with her because it says that she was physically beautiful. So uh, though Joseph had many blessings in his life, the one curse in essence in his life is he was a really good looking guy. It says that he had a, a beautiful or handsome form and appearance, which literally means the guy had a great looking face and bottom line, he had a nice bod, apparently, somehow. That's what the Bible's indicating. And again, when the Bible says that, uh, it, it, you know, God's clear. You know, when God says somebody is attractive or beautiful in the Word of God, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't lie. So he was a very physically attractive man. You know, here's a young man. He's got a very good physical frame, apparently. He's very attractive in the face. 
uh, and that, rather than being a benefit, actually began to become a real uh, difficult thing and a, a real uh, problematic matter in his own life, because notice verse 7, it says, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, that is Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said to him, lie with me. So subtlety has no boundary in her life here. It's just very, very direct. She just invites him uh, into her bedchambers to uh, be sexually active with him. Verse 8, and you should circle these three words, but he refused. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the entire household, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I mean, this is just a phenomenal indication of exactly really what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, that first many of us know no temptation has seized you except such as common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and with the temptation, he always provides the way of escape so that you can bear up under it. And here is that Bible promise and truth literally being lived out on the other side of the cross, apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and much of what you and I have as an asset to our spiritual life now, being lived out by this young man, again, at this point, again, is, is he 17? Did this happen right away? Is he 18? Is he 20? He, he, bottom line is this, he's still a very young man. So, I mean, you just need to in, envision this and don't try and downplay and diminish the incredible power of this temptation and what it would have been in his life this would not be a successful triumph over temptation if this wasn't very difficult for him as a young man he is at an age where biologically you know studies indicate that at that age the sexual drive in a young man is at its absolute peak and he's a good-looking attractive man and no doubt here you have this wife of potiphar so, you know, she's a high-ranking official's wife. There's money. You know, she, she's probably a very attractive woman. She's a powerful woman. And, and, and she is making advancements towards him. And quite honestly, not being subtle, she's literally offering herself. She's throwing herself at him, giving him a direct invitation and spreading the platter out in front of him on the table and saying, look, go to bed with me. Now, we have to take into consideration how extremely difficult that would be in the reality of living in the flesh for Joseph. Here's this young guy. His passions are real. I mean, let's be realistic. His sexual drives and passions are extremely high at this point biologically in his life by God's design. On top of that, here he is. He's down in Egypt. He's all alone. And Egyptian women in that culture were known to be very loose, very morally lax, to be you know, promiscuous among Egyptian women was a very common thing. So this wasn't something that was uncommon in the culture. And here she's offering him a, a free opportunity. And you can imagine all the different thoughts that would run through the mind of Joseph and the devil would sow into his mind. What, what, what are you kidding me? Who's going to know? You're down here in Egypt. 
Nobody's going to know what's going on down here in Egypt. You're, you, you, nobody's around. Nobody's aware of what's going on in your life. And, and I mean, look what's happened to you anyway. I mean, you, you ought to be entitled to something. I mean, look how wrong everything's gone so far. I mean, you know, at least you ought to indulge yourself. And, and here is every, no doubt, rational, if you want to use the word rational, probably justification he could have put through his brain. But the thing that Joseph knew is this. Bottom line is this, the Lord is with me, and the Lord knows, and the Lord will see. And, and Joseph was able to reconcile in his mind that though this is an incredible legitimate temptation, this is not a temptation that I should submit to because this is wrong. And temptation, though it is real, can be refused. It can be refused. I think the thing that's important to take notice here is how in the world does Joseph manage to overcome and resist this temptation? Because listen, the bottom line is we all experience temptation in our lives in many different forms. And it may not necessarily be in this strong sense a sexual temptation for you. Maybe for you it's going to be an occasion to lie or to cheat, or to steal, or you know whatever it is, you plug it in there. Temptation is a universal thing. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. No temptation seized you except such as common to man. Temptation is a common thread that runs through all of us, and we all have strong passions in our fleshly, sinful nature that is inclined to want to do wrong things, to indulge ourselves selfishly, to satisfy ourselves. And again, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. People wouldn't sin if it wasn't enjoyable. So there are always those things that are going to be set before us that you know we're prone to do, and there's that magnetic draw, there's the opportunity, there's temptation. The question becomes, how do we have victory over that? Well, take note of some of the things here with Joseph, because I think, again, whether it's sexual temptation and trying to overcome that, or whether it's any temptation, when it comes into our life, take notice of a few things. Joseph, speaking to her, it says he refuses, saying to her, Look, my master's committed to me everything that's in his house, and there's no one greater in his house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. First of all, one of the first things I see about Joseph is Joseph had a sense of accountability to others and to the Lord. Joseph recognized who he was, and he, and he realized, look, my master is counting on me, and God has given me a role and a sense of responsibility. There's a value to who I am and to what I do, and, and, and if I cast that aside, this isn't just going to affect me. This is going to hurt and destroy a whole lot of people. First and foremost, this is going to destroy your marriage. You're his wife. That's going to completely, you know, ravage your marriage. It's going to ruin my position. It's going to destroy my role and my reputation and my identity. And how many times, you know, do people enter into, you know, some immoral behavior? Again, what it may be, they give give way to temptation, and in a matter of 24 to 48 hours, their whole life is revolutionized. And how you talk to them on the other side of it, and how many times I have spoken to individuals who on 24 hours or 48 hours later say, I would literally give my right arm to turn back what I just did and wish that I had never done it. 
And, and again, so important that we realize in relation to sin and temptation that we always take into consideration one of the most vital things to overcome sin is, look, don't wait until the hour that it comes. You need to be contemplating in advance if I choose to sin in this way or do this or take this path when it's set before me, what is that going to do to my life 24 hours from now? What would that do to my marriage? What would that do to all the people I'm connected to that are counting on me and the relationships that I have? And Joseph had wisely thought that out ahead of time. And it was one of the things that kept him anchored in the will of God rather than letting him drift off out in the sea of sin when that incredible temptation was there. He says, look, I could never do this because it would ravage and have such powerful effects upon you, upon me, upon my master, he says. Look as well what he says. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I love Joseph's language there. How can I do this, look what he calls it, great wickedness. Here's a guy who has a proper perspective towards sin. Notice, he does not see adultery as a love affair. And it makes me sick that people go, it's a love affair. No, it's not a love affair. It's a lustful indulgence and it's a great wickedness. We, you know, we want to return things to sort of you know, pad down what they really are. And praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit sets before us the truth and the word of God of a proper perspective towards sin. It's not a love affair. It's a great wickedness. You know, it, it's not what was, why. No, it's wickedness and it's sin against God. And one of the things that we need to retain in our lives is a proper perspective towards sin. That we wouldn't just, you know, look at sin as some trivial thing. Oh, what's the big deal? And that's what our world is trying to convince us to do. That's what our world does to try and, again, pad its own conscience so it continues in the error of a way that it does. And it wants to infiltrate the same thing into our mindset. Where if we don't have a healthy perspective towards sin, it's very easy then to start looking at sin as a trivial thing. And notice Joseph says, this is a great wickedness, and I would be sinning against God. He has that sense of, look, this isn't just wrong on a horizontal level. Like David said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And Joseph did not want to break the heart of God. I think it was his love for God that made him say, you know what, not only would this hurt a lot of people but this would be a great wickedness against God. This would break God's heart. And his relationship with God was something that made him want to refuse and not do something that would so grieve the heart of God in relation to that. Verse 10, notice it says, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. So again, indicating. And how long did that last? Day by day. You know, day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Take notice. Another thing that helped Joseph to overcome sin is, is he was very practical in relation to avoiding the opportunity of struggling with the temptation. Day by day. She didn't back off, but every day it says that she continued to press the matter. Again, was it through subtleties? I mean, how many times have things happened where, you know, again, you, you have to envision the household environment. You know, how many times was she making subtle innuendos? Or how, how did this whole process unfold itself many times before she even became as brazen as she did, where she actually came right out and said, Go to bed with me. Have sex with me. You know, come into my bed. I mean, was there times where she would dress in certain ways or all the little subtle things that led up to that? 
And day by day, she's trying to wear him down, trying to draw him in. And it says that Joseph ultimately said, not only refused, but he said, verse 10, that he wouldn't even be with her. Now that's wisdom. You know, to recognize, you know what, I don't want to put myself in a place where there's even opportunity. The Bible says, flee youthful lusts. And Joseph realized, look, if she's going to be dressing in a certain way or making herself available or saying certain things, the best thing I can do is put as much distance between me and that temptation as possible. And if there's an area in your life, in my life, and we all have them, where you realize, hey, this is an area where I know that I tend to be prone to being tempted towards, you know, the wisest thing you can do sometimes is just use your brain and be practical, okay? Listen, if, if, if you struggle with, you know, with drinking alcohol, well, don't go sit in the bar and have conversations with people. If, if you struggle with spending, well, then don't have six credit cards and get magazines to every business and store under the sun uh, because that's going to be a struggle for you. If you struggle with you know, sexual things or pornography, do whatever you have to do practically to cut off every opportunity. If you're beginning to develop a relationship with someone that is not healthy, instead of justifying, oh, well, it's no big deal, or we're just friends, or we're business partners, no, you cut off every opportunity possible to diminish even the opportunity to present itself for you to succumb to that temptation. And Joseph here, again, why wouldn't even be with her. He did whatever he could, simple one word, to avoid her because she was the source of temptation. And so wise many a times for us to just be very practical and to avoid temptation altogether. It's one of the greatest things. And you know, ultimately, verse 11, even though Joseph was doing these things, it says it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside, and I can guarantee you who arranged that. Again, here he's in the house to do the work, and she had conveniently arranged that day, Potiphar's wife, because she hadn't won over yet. Uh, and here she is, you know, kind of the tigress here. She's trying to get her prey. So she conveniently makes sure everybody's out of the house on one occasion. Uh, she's going to do whatever she needs to do to fulfill her goal here. It says, none of the men were, was inside that she, look at this, actually caught him by his garment. So she actually physically takes hold of him and says, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And listen, if nothing else works, there's the last resort. Again, just flee. Sometimes the best thing to do when you find yourself in a spot where temptation is pressing upon you, and again, is to just get away. To just get away. Do whatever you can proactively to avoid, to avoid, to avoid, but you know as well as I do, sometimes you can avoid, avoid, avoid to the best of your ability, uh, and you don't even have to go looking for temptation. It'll come looking for you. And, and when it does, and when it hunts you down, the best thing you can do is not say, well, I can resist this, I'm going to quote scripture. I can pray. Well, you can pray and quote scripture and fall flat on your face five minutes later. And I'm not diminishing the, the value of those things. But sometimes the best thing to do is like Joseph to say, you know what, I may lose my coat, but I want to keep my character. So whatever that takes, people can laugh at me as I'm running out the door in my, you know, undergarment robe or, or you know, and, and <laughs> look at Joseph, what an idiot, you know, hey, that's fine. You can think I'm weak, you can call me what you want, but whatever I got to do to get away from it, 
I'm going to do whatever I got to do. And it's, that, again, that humility that says, hey, whatever it takes, I, I'll just run. And again, Paul told Timothy, flee, youthful. Just run. Just run. And there is a time, I think, when we're in that moment to realize the best thing to do is to just, again, take the way of escape. He goes running outside. She's holding his garment. Well, again, there's that old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? Well, here's a biblical illustration where this came from. Verse 13, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us, referring to her husband, a Hebrew to mock us. And he came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I left, that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she figures, okay, if I'm not going to get my way, then I'm going to do whatever I can to sabotage and shipwreck him. And again, in her anger, then she fabricates this entire story that basically he's the one that came in and basically uh, you know, endeavored to rape her. Uh, so she fabricates this story, screams and makes up this story and calls all the other servants in and, and says, look, he made advancements towards me, this Hebrew, and makes up this whole horrific lie about Joseph falsely accusing him. And verse 16 says she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And then she spoke these words, notice, to her husband saying, notice, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us, you're the one that brought this Hebrew servant into our house, well, he came in and he tried to mock me. So what happened is I lifted up my voice and cried out because he was trying to attack me and rape me, she says, that he left his garment with me and he ran and fled outside. And verse 19 says, So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So as Potiphar comes home, he hears this story that his wife tells him, this complete false accusation, and very interesting, again, verse 19, it simply says, verse 19, that his anger was aroused. Please take note, it doesn't say who his anger was aroused against. Because I think it's very likely, as I believe I alluded to last week, that Potiphar's anger was in some ways aroused towards his wife because he was discerning enough, as most married couples are, to realize, you know what, this story doesn't sound like the Joseph that I know. And no doubt, probably, I'm sure maybe again that there were occasions where his wife had already had a little bit of history in maybe her flirtatious personality or other things where he no doubt thought to himself, it's very likely that this story is a big fabricated sham because it just says that he was ar anger was aroused. It doesn't say his anger was aroused at Joseph. And again, keep in mind, this is the chief executioner. This is the, the, the head of the secret service forces, a man with incredible power, you know, to, to make an, an effort to rape a high-ranking political person's wife. Bottom line, Joseph should have been dead. He should have been tossed into prison. He should have lost his life. This chief executioner, if he believed this story was accurate, he would have put Joseph to dead on the spot. 
but he doesn't. Instead, it says he takes him and he puts him into the prison, and he doesn't even put him where the civil criminals are. He puts him into the prison, kind of where the white-collar prisoners were in the king's prison, probably because there's a dynamic there where he's angry and upset in some senses towards his wife and realizes, you know what, I'm stuck now, and I've got to do something to save face, to maintain our you know, political image. So he puts Joseph into a prison because he feels like he has no other option. His hands are tied. And he's probably extremely angered at his wife because of what she's done, as well as the fact that you just made me lose my most prominent employee. So not only were you being unfaithful to me, but now you just made me lose Joseph, who was an incredible asset to our household. Uh, and Joseph now finds himself, what, falsely accused and tossed into prison. And take note, there's no mention of Joseph doing what? Defending himself. He doesn't defend himself. He just silently lets himself be falsely accused and cast into prison. And he's falsely accused and he suffers for something that he doesn't even do. Again, an incredible picture and typology as Joseph is in many ways of Jesus. The Bible says, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus, falsely accused for things that he didn't do and suffers unnecessarily, but he doesn't defend himself. Joseph silently finds himself now being tossed in the prison. And can you imagine what has got to be going through this young man's mind? Again, he's human just like you and I. Can you? He's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I get tossed into a pit, I get brought down to Egypt, I get bought as a slave, but I okay, Lord, if I'm going to be a slave, I'm going to be the best slave that I can be, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to be faithful to you, and I know you're still with me, and God's blessing him, and he's being promoted in the house, and he's doing well, and, and he's seeking to serve the Lord, and then this woman's making advancements towards him, and he's doing the righteous thing. He's resisting, and he's refusing, he's resisting, and he's refusing, and he's, he's, he's maintaining his integrity, and what's his reward for it? He gets falsely accused. And now he gets tossed in the prison. And can you imagine his humanity, how he's wrestling just like you and I would, thinking, this is the reward I get for doing the right thing? Have you ever found yourself in that spot before where you're thinking, here, I'm doing the right thing, and this is the reward I get for doing what's right? I get treated like this? This happens to me as a result of doing the right thing? And, and, and here he's going through these incredible difficulties. He now finds himself in a prison cell on top of everything else, but notice verse 21 again, but, and that's the key, but the Lord was with Joseph. Now he's in prison. He went from being a slave to now he's a prisoner, but the Lord was with Joseph and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever they did there, it was his doing. And the keeper of the prison did not look into anything, notice, that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So again, the Lord's hand is with him. Whether Joseph is serving in the small responsibilities of his father Jacob's flocks in the family business, whether Joseph's serving in Potiphar's house, managing all the household servants and the activities of this, no doubt, very wealthy, prominent man's household who was an official uh, in sort of the empire of Egypt, a very you know, great household, or whether Joseph is a prisoner. Everywhere Joseph goes, notice, Joseph is faithful to the Lord there. 
and, and he's effective in what he does. And again, it tells us that Joseph finds himself in the same spot where, again, the, the prison you know, kind of guard, the, the keeper of the jail is looking at Joseph and he says, you know, there's something about this guy. And, and once again, you see the same thing. It's almost verbatim language of what you see in the earlier chapter where the keeper of the prison, it says, begins to commit things to the stewardship of Joseph. It says he didn't look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And you know, what, what a great reminder for us that wherever the Lord has us and wherever we find ourselves is just to be faithful and to be a good steward there and to realize that God can bless us and use us and prosper us wherever he puts us. And, and you know, life may have its ups and downs and we may find ourselves here and then thrust over here apart from our preference or whatever. But the key is wherever we're at, being conscious of the presence of God and just being faithful to cultivate good stewardship there and faithfulness there. And notice, God's the one who's blessing, God's prospering him, God's promoting him once again, lifting him up. And through all these things, what's God doing? He's preparing Joseph. Because one day, Joseph is going to take on way more responsibility, and God is positioning him to be in the right place at the right time. But God's also preparing him by letting him handle other affairs so that when he gets to the place he needs to be, he'll be ready to handle. Look how verse 1 of chapter 40 opens up. It says, And it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker, and maybe the candlestick maker, I don't know. You know, you have to think that when you hear that. And the king of Egypt, of the king of Egypt, offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers and the chief butler and the baker. So again, we read these terms butler and baker and we you know, envision certain things in our mind. In that culture, the butler uh, of Pharaoh, and that's who this is referring to, the Pharaoh of Egypt, was basically the person who was sort of like his uh, wine taster, the cupbearer. We read that term later on in the book of Nehemiah. These were very prominent positions. This would be the guy who was next to and very deeply involved with Pharaoh on a daily basis. He would make sure his, his you know, wine was was safe before he would drink it. He would, you know, typically the cupbearer would drink the wine before it would be given uh, to the, the ruler or the emperor, whoever it was, so that if somebody, there was a palace coup going on, was trying to kill uh, the king or the Pharaoh, uh, the cupbearer would taste it first. And if he fell over dead, then the, the Pharaoh, well, get us a new cupbearer. I'm still alive. And so, but you spent a lot of time with the Pharaoh. So you became someone, though it seemed to be an expendable position, you also became in some ways almost like a, you know, a, an aide and an advisor to those who were in political positions. So again, this was a prominent role. Don't just envision in your mind a, a typical household butler. And the baker would be somebody who was no doubt in headship over all of the meal preparations in the household uh, for the pharaoh. And Something happens, the Bible doesn't tell us what, where these two individuals cause offense towards the king of Egypt and Pharaoh becomes angry with them. It seems he doesn't realize who's guilty and who's not. Maybe again there was some palace coup and some poison showed up in the household and he's trying to trace down maybe who it might be uh, directed or prompted by. So he just takes both of them. He confines them to the prison because of his anger in the moment. And there they are now, verse 3 it says, and notice where they end up, they're put in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. 
And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while. So they now find themselves attached to Joseph and attached to his care, and Joseph's responsibility over the affairs of the prisoners causes him to be in direct connection with these two individuals. And verse 5 says, The butler and the baker, king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream. And both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. So the same night, they both have a dream. And apparently these dreams, they realize hey, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't just one of those goofy, ordinary dreams from too much pizza or just, you know, sometimes you have the really off the wall type. These men had a dream the same night and they had a dream in such a way that they profoundly recognize their significance to this. They have some type of dream that they realize has some type of significance and it's really weighing upon them. And verse 6 says, Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? So again, take notice, Joseph's a man of compassion. He recognizes these two particular prisoners who are with him under his stewardship and care in the prison, that something's troubling them. And he actually is compassionate enough to care. And again, you know, it shows you what the character of this man Joseph was like. He actually, he actually cared about people. Again, Joseph could have very easily at this point in his life kind of got a little cynical and self-indulgent. You've got to be kidding me. I'm going to be in a prison. I'm going to be in a prison here. Who cares about anybody else? And he could have just got very angry and embittered. And sometimes, again, when people go through a difficult thing or some disappointing thing happens and a hardship happens, and can I be very candid? Many times, way less of a disappointment and difficulty than the things Joseph are dealing with. And they become completely embittered towards God and hateful and embittered towards everybody else. And they just, who cares about anything and who cares about people? Joseph didn't let that happen. Joseph continued to retain a soft enough heart, and in humility, he sees something's troubling these two other individuals. Instead of being self-absorbed and self-pity and focus on me and woe is me and I'm angry at the world because bad things have happened, instead he's thinking about other people. And he realizes something's wrong, so he inquires, hey, what's the matter with you guys? You seem sad. Something's wrong. Well, they told him, said, we each have had a dream. And there's no interpreter of it. So, again, we're troubled because we've had these dreams and we know that they mean something. We've been talking among ourselves. Hey, and, and, but how are we ever going to know what this means? And there's no interpreter. Well, verse 8 says, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. Again, not only does Joseph have a caring and compassionate heart towards people, but he also has a real conscious sense of how great God is because he says, look, you need an interpretation. Isn't God the one who gives interpretations? Again, he doesn't think there's anything special about him, but he acknowledges the glory to be in the right place. He says, hey, I don't know, and I know you don't know, but I bet you God knows the interpretation. And maybe if I seek God, God will give me the interpretation to your dream. And again, Joseph had had some experience with dreams because it seemed to be the way God worked in his life. You'll notice that God speaks to him via dreams. Here he interprets dreams with Pharaoh later on. And it seemed to be a gift and something God had just kind of wired into Joseph. Like, much like Daniel later on, when you read the prophecy of Daniel. Again, as Nebuchadnezzar has that dream and none of the wise men can figure it out. And, and, and Daniel says, hey, before you lop off all our heads, 
can you just give me a little bit of time to have a prayer meeting? Let me go seek God, because God knows everything. And maybe God can give the interpretation to the dream. And here Joseph says, look, don't interpretations belong to God? If anybody can give an interpretation, God can. So he says, tell me your dream, please. So the chief butler told his dream to Joseph, saying, behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and the vine, in the vine were three branches. And it was though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So he pictured himself, again, doing what he had done before. And I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said, again, God had given to him understanding, apparently, Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three days, or excuse me, the three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former matter when you were in, whereas his butler. But, verse 14, he says to him, look, you're going to get your position restored. And then again, the, the honesty of him, he says, do me a favor though, verse 14. Would you remember me when it's well with you and please show kindness to me and make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the hand of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should have put me into the dungeon. So Joseph says, look, here, here's the interpretation. God's revealed to you that your innocence, apparently he was the innocent one, is going to be vindicated. And in three days, Pharaoh's going to make a determination. You're going to be restored to your position. And he says, do me a favor. If this comes to pass, as it's going to, and then you're in a place, again, where you have the ear of Pharaoh, would you put in a good word for me? Would you utilize it? Would you? And no doubt, you can picture this uh, guy who was the, the chief butler saying, Look, man, anything, man, I'll owe you anything. If you do something like that for me and that's going to come true, no problem. I will certainly do that for you. And you can imagine Joseph, he's thinking, all right, yeah, God's going to interpret this dream. And when he gets to the place of having Pharaoh's ear again, he's going to speak on my behalf and the Lord will finally get me out of this dump. I've been sitting here, you know, and, and I'll be vindicated as the result of doing the right thing once again. Verse 16 says, and when the chief baker saw the interpretation was good, he thought, well, that sounded like a pretty good interpretation. How about mine? Can you, can you give me my interpretation? And so he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets. It was kind of like his. Mine had three baskets, though, he said. Three baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods. Again, he's a baker. For Vero. And isn't that interesting how God speaks to you in your own language? This guy's job is pastry, so God speaks to him in pastry language. Interesting way that works. And the birds, he says, came and they ate the, the baked goods. They ate all the pastries out of the basket that was sitting up on my head. Well, usually birds don't mean good things in the Bible. Look what happens, verse 18. So Joseph answered and said, no, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. So that's good so far. All right, we're on this three-day thing. I'm connected to this guy. And within three days, Pharaoh will uh, lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. So again, sorry I can't give you the same uh, encouragement. Basically, your guilt has been exposed and you're going to be executed and you're going to lose your life. And again, I appreciate the thing about Joseph. Again, shows you he's a man of integrity. 
and a man of character because with the same truth he speaks the hard thing as he does the easy thing. He Again, and that's integrity. And that's important, and that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness to God. It's very easy to tell somebody something good and encouraging. It's very difficult to say to somebody, look, what you have done is wrong, and you're going to be exposed, and God's going to deal with you because of it. But the bottom line is this. We have to be people who speak the truth either way. We have to be people who speak the truth when it's easy and when it's hard and when it's palatable and easy to accept and when it's going to be like bitter words in somebody's soul. And Joseph, he had integrity and he had character and he spoke the truth. He didn't, again, try and embellish one way or the other. He just faithfully conveyed what God spoke and needed to be shared. And verse 20 says, It came to pass on the third day when it was Pharaoh's birthday that he made a feast for all his servants... And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And then verse 21, again, shows you Joseph heard from God. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So again, does God give dreams at times? Absolutely. It can be one of the ways God speaks to us. I think we need to be very careful. There are times when we have dreams that I don't think they're dreams of God, but one of the ways we see in the Bible that God can speak is through dreams and that God can give somebody the ability to interpret a dream. And, and here we see this in the Word of God. Joseph is a living example of that reality and how God revealed things through dreams. So exactly what Joseph says God showed him takes place, and that's how you can tell it's accurate, because his interpretation's on target. The one man's restored, the butler was positioned, the baker's executed exactly as Joseph interpreted. And here's our hinge verse for where we go next time, verse 23. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <laughs> can you imagine this poor guy? He's thinking, oh, like, man, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get restored. You're going to get your position back. And do me a favor. When you get your position back, just all I'm asking, nothing big. Would you just remember me? Put in a word for me. Just speak on my behalf while you have the ear for Oh, no problem. It's the least I can do for you. I'm going to get my job back. My, I'm not going to be put to death. And I'm absolutely no problem. Hey, you're a good guy. And I'm, I'm going to certainly say whatever I can for you. And as soon as the moment happens, he's restored. It says that he doesn't remember Joseph and he forgets him. And there's Joseph left in prison still again sitting there in fact chapter 41 verse 1 says it came to pass at the end of two years so for the next two years joseph sits there thinking i don't think this guy remembered what we talked about now one of the things joseph was learning in that process again is not to put his reliance upon people because you know what the truth of the matter is, I wish I could tell you that when people promise things and say they're going to do things, that they're going to follow through. But the truth of the matter is, is many, many times it never happens. Part of that's just because people are people. They're fickle. They're human. I think sometimes people even have great intentions, and they, they mean their intention. And just in their humanity, the weakness of their flesh, they, they, they don't follow through for this reason or that reason. Other times people just lie that's why our dependence has to be upon God. We can't rely upon people. We have to have our full reliance upon God. And guess what? 
Joseph will get out of that prison when God wants Joseph to get out of that prison. Because the interesting thing is, is two years later, he sits in the prison for two years. And again, imagine the struggle this guy's going through. God's stretching his faith muscles. God's testing him. God's letting... But two years later, when Pharaoh has some dreams, then, interesting at that moment, then all of a sudden this guy remembers as Pharaoh says, I need somebody to interpret the dreams. All of a sudden, it clicks in his mind. Wait, oh, you need somebody to interpret a dream. Oy vey, oh my goodness. <laughs> Wow, I hope this guy's not going to be mad at me. You know, <laughs> you know, here I've been enjoying the perks of the palace again for two years. And you know, and all of a sudden he remembers Joseph and then he speaks on Joseph's behalf. And Joseph is then what? Taken out of the prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dream and he's put to the second in charge. And he spares the entire empire of Egypt and he spares the, the, the people of Israel from the famine. And so we, we know the story, many of us do. My point is this. I think, that it's very possible that when it says there the butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him, I think potentially that's divine amnesia. I question and wonder if potentially the reason why that guy didn't remember is because God didn't want him to remember yet. Because if Joseph's anything like you and I, if he would have got out of prison the same day or the day after that guy got out of prison... I guarantee you, after all this guy had been through, as soon as he got his liberty, he would have turned tail and ran back to Canaan to go see Jacob, his father, and everybody back there and got out of Egypt as quickly as he could. And guess what? Then two years later, when Pharaoh had his dreams and the critical hour of the moment to be there for such a time as this, he wouldn't have been there for such a time as this. Because he would have just moved on. So God kept him where he needed to be. And see, God's not quite as concerned about time as we are. And God never wastes time. And sometimes you feel like, man, I I can't believe they forgot me. I can't believe they overlooked me. I can't believe I got left in the lurch. and, 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 And we're so disappointed because I can't believe this. And I got totally overlooked. And, and we feel forgotten and abandoned. The reality is, look, overlooked by man, maybe, but not overlooked by God. And God, God's not quite as concerned about that. And God will at times keep us where he needs to keep us in a situation so that we're at the right place at the right time because God's coordinating all the affairs for what he has in our life. And so God may allow us to sit dormant somewhere without answers, disappointed, wondering, waiting. But what are we doing in that time? Having to live by faith and ultimately you see then at the right hour, I believe, then God says all of a sudden, okay, I'll stop blocking his memory, but (laughs) I'll pull that off and all of a sudden he remembers. So again, I say that to just encourage you because, you know, we... Gang, we walk out things in this life, and I wish so many times I had the answers to questions. Why did this happen and why that? And it seemed like I just wasted two years of my life and so on and so forth. That's never the case with God. Never the case with God. He's never wasting your time. He's coordinating everything because he makes all things beautiful in his time, his perfect timing. And that's what we see happening with Joseph.